This is Paul Siegel. You're listening to Wandering DMs. Wandering DMs is broadcast live at 1 p.m. Eastern on twitch.tv slash wanderingdms and youtube.com slash wanderingdms slash live. And now, on with the show. Hi everyone, welcome to Wandering DMs. I'm Paul. And I'm Dan, and today on Wandering DMs, we're going to be talking about the 1988 Mega Adventure for Advanced Dungeons and Dragons, Pool Radiance, and that's the gold box computer game that I've live streamed for about the last year, and also Ruins of Adventure, which is the print publication version of the same adventure, and we'll be talking about the crossover of tabletop and computer game design, all that and more today on Wandering DMs. Before we get into that, I will remind everyone that at the end of the show, we will be hosting, as always, our after-party chat, which is a private video chat that Dan and I host on our private Discord server, which is available to all our patrons. Uh, you can join in on that chat very easily by just becoming a patron, patreon.com slash wanderingdms. Join at any tier, and you'll get an invite to the Discord server. Get that all squared away through the show, and uh, 2 p.m. we'll be there live to chat with you. We love hanging out with our patrons every Sunday afternoon. Um, so let me, for people that don't know this, Paul, let me kind of lay a little bit of historical groundwork for this interesting adventure. There, you know, that they they hmm. clearly produced this computer game and this print publication for D and D at the same time. A little odd that they don't have the same name, in my opinion. It was a, it's a little hard to track down that the the computer game version is called Pool Radiance and the print version, the tabletop version of the ex totally the exact same adventure is called Ruins of Adventure instead. So um, these both came out basically simultaneously in 1988. An interesting moment for D&D &D because uh, the Forgotten Realms themselves had just been published the prior year, 87. So Ed Green Greenwood's famous campaign setting of Forgotten Realms hadn't been uh, a printed you know, campaign setting until 87. Uh, and TSR was actually doing that to transition away from Greyhawk with uh, Gary Gygax having departed in 1985. And this, this particular adventure came out one year before second edition AD&D. So technically it's still in the, the right at the end edition, advanced D&D era. Second edition was going to come out next year. And so a lot of the graphic design, a lot of the font work and art, you know, really kind of looks like second edition to my eyes. So kind of this interesting window right between Forgotten Realms coming out and right before second edition being released. And they got in with this very popular adventure, right? Again, Pool of Radiance won the Origins Award for Best Computer Game that year. Really beloved, set off multiple years of these gold box games. Very successful, kind of a weird moment to do that. If I can uh, give a, just a little bit of personal history here. Um, I've... Fans of the show may know that I have been always a huge fan of the Pool of Radiance uh, computer game. I, I love that game. I've played it. Uh, it's probably the game I've completed the most times. I've replayed it many, many times. I remember originally learning about it in a full-page ad in a Dragon magazine. Uh, so probably right around 89 is probably when I became aware of it. Uh, okay. Saved up all my own money so that I could go and buy it full price at Electronics Boutique at the mall uh, with my allowance money. 55 bucks cost back then. Pretty shocking oh, wow. considering that, like, uh, yeah, that, that price range of video games hasn't really changed. 
for yeah, decades. Right? right? Kind of That's crazy. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. Um, crazy. You know. Um, but anyway, so yeah, I've I've played this game forever. I I super loved this game. Um, and yeah, I, I was probably at the time. I was probably playing some weird mix of first edition AD&D and BX. It was, would have been that time period where I had both yeah. of those products and didn't yeah. really understand that they were different. Um, I probably wasn't really playing very much, frankly. I didn't really have a group to play with, was too young to figure out how to get that all, make that all happen. Um, so part of probably the appeal to me was, sweet, I can, I can install this on my dad's 8086 and I can play D&D by myself. And I totally did. And it was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and I'll if I can tip my hat in... a little bit of yeah. the direction I'm going to go with this, I would say okay. that the title change is maybe apt. Oh, okay, okay. <laughs> why do you why do you feel that? Oh, you know, because they ruin the adventure. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness! Okay, <laughs> walk right into that, that one. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Before, okay, before we get into that, let me just let me bitch in that our that our friend Disparal here is pointing on the chat that there was also a um, uh, a tie-in novel um, to this same adventure, and I will and Disparal has been very helpful uh, throughout my live stream play. Uh, there's the link to uh, that in the chat and also the uh, description on YouTube to this this episode uh, if you want to see that. Um, and Disparal is an expert in the game and, you know, gave me a lot of good advice and guidance along the way. So thanks again, Disparal. Um, and, you know, it's funny because the novel tie-ins I'm a little bit more used to. They had a number of novel, novel tie-ins for famous um, adventures throughout, I think, throughout the 90s and early 2000s. But this idea of coming out simultaneously with computer game and tabletop adventure, didn't, that's, that seems a little bit more unusual historically. I don't think I, I never read the novel tie-in to this particular uh, adventure. I, I, I do remember reading some Forgotten Realms novels that came out in that period. But um, yeah, I, I never owned this module. I've only read it recently as as a you know uh, with a lot of perspective on the thing. So I never owned this. I can't give any kind of historical like yeah we loved it or hated it or whatnot. Um, but you know what I did own? Here's here's my I warned you Dan I was going to surprise you with something. You know what I did own. Uh, was this the official Pool of Radiance clue book okay. published um, published by SSI? Um, so this you could buy this. I can't remember how much this costs, but it, you could go buy it down at the Electronics Boutique, right along with the uh, right side by side with the game itself. Um, now remember, this is a time before you could go online and like go find walkthroughs to games. Right, yeah. that didn't exist. Right, or if it did. Yep. I certainly didn't know how to find it. I was not on the BBSs or anything back then trying to figure out how to... So if you were stuck, if you were stuck playing this game, which I, let me tell you, I got stuck playing this game a couple times where I was just like, okay. I don't know how to, okay. how to move forward. You could get this clue book. And this clue book, is it clues? No, no, it's not, Dan. It is a complete walkthrough of the game with okay. very okay. specific maps, keyed locations, okay. exact descriptions of everything in the game complete transcription of the game into paper form. To, to which point, I would say, if you were going to try and run a D&D &D game of Pool of Radiance, I might use the clue book instead of the printed module. <laughs> Fascinating. 
Fascinating. You know, yeah. one thing I'll yeah. point out is that it feels to me like the the graphic design is the same as the as the print mm -hmm. adventure that we're looking at, actually. So I don't know how much crossover mm -hmm. there was between the teams creating this and the actual print publication because it actually Good question. If you told me that this was a map out of this the the, the official adventure, I would have believed it. Yeah. Yeah. Now this is this was a this was this was booklet sized, right? Our our, yeah. our kind of favorite format of uh, five and a half by by eight and a half uh, staple booklet. And um, the nice thing was it fit right in the box, right? It, if you, that's kind of roughly the size of the box that the game, video game came in. It was the same size as the official rule book or manual that came with the game. So right. I had the box with this booklet and the rule book and my code wheel and the bunch of five and a quarter inch floppy disks. That was that was the <laughs> yep yep. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So anyway, right. uh, we can get we can get more into that, um, and and we can I can do some more comparisons to the clue book and why I would use the clue book over the over the module as we as we go. But um, I feel like I've I've espoused a lot of opinions very early in the show. So Dan. Well, I want to I hear that. Okay, I want to dig into this. <laughs> I think I want to dig into this. Right, you got me. You, you wet my appetite. So I want to dig into this. So why? Yeah. So you think that the 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 print version is a ruined version of the computer version? Why? Why is that? The print version I find to be really okay. So first of all, let's talk about the maps, right? Let's talk about the maps. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, they're different, right? They're they're not the same. They are. They're not identical. They are. Right. Um. Kind of. No, I'm gonna. So, I'm gonna sometimes because I was just showing. Sometimes they. Mm -hmm. Sorry, go on. What are you saying? Sometimes they're close, and then they, 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 there's they, sometimes they're they're sometimes they are like in places they're replication, and then they're a little bit different, and then sometimes they're totally different. It's a very it's a very like hard to predict um, uh, matchup between the the print maps and the game maps. Um, and the funny thing is, they're all the same size, right? So the the game because of the the computer architecture, right? The game maps are always a sixteen by sixteen grid all the time, every single yep. particular you know area, and the the print adventure maps are also the exact same size. They're they're a sixteen by sixteen grid when they're a grid, but then they don't always they don't always match up. I have an example. If you pull up my uh, my green dot. Example, if you want to yeah, look at this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just a second, pull that one up. Yep, there it is. Yep. So this is the Kudos well area. And at the top, I, I pulled off uh, an online walkthrough of the Kudos well area from the computer game. And the bottom is the version from uh, the print, the, the book version. And you can see that, okay, so like, like around the top, right around the top right or, you know, a middle right, it's a pretty good match. And then like the middle bottom, totally different, right? And there's like some places that were kind of ruined superstructure became whole buildings and the center is a lot more clear. And so even on this one single uh, uh, setting area, like the top part is, is the top part's often a pretty close match and the bottom part is very, very different. And it's like, why did you? So clearly they were looking they had to be looking at one yeah. or the other, but then why are they making these these differences in places? It's hard to predict. It's a, it's a fascinating, interesting question, Dan. I knew I knew you had this graphic for us, so just just for uh, comparison's sake, uh, here's kudos well in the hint book. Um, <laughs> yeah, which you can see is pretty yeah. close to what you were seeing from your online um, walkthrough, right? 
Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. That's yeah. a so match. Put, if they if they right. So if they were sharing resources, I think you're right. You know that if if they were sharing resources, they clearly decided intentionally here to to vary from the computer game. And I wonder, right? Like, I mean, it's a shame that we don't have people here to to ask these pose these questions to. But like, part of me yeah. wonders. Were they trying to not spoil the computer game? Like, were they actually aware of the concept of spoilers? But if so, why are they publishing hint books? <laughs> like, right, uh, right. Yeah, I don't know. I'm very confused right? by that. Very confused by that. I feel um, like in places, I feel so. So, what, the, as much as of a theory as I have, it, and it's interesting because I assumed right that if something was going to get sim- harder versus simpler. I figured that the computer game would be harder just because they have more space and you're playing solo and because we can make the maze as big as you want and you're just going to deal with it. Um, but the they're, they are the same overall size. And yet, nonetheless, the paper version tends to be a little bit simpler. And you can see here, like with Kudo as well, the, the whole the whole middle plaza is just all open here. And yeah. if you look at the slums area, which is the very first, the very first adventuring area, right? In the computer version, it's a very mazy, and you have to find your way through a whole bunch of doors and remember that, right here, mm-hmm. right? And yep. if you, if you, and I don't have it prepped, but if you look at the paper oh, version, I brought it for oh, you, Dan. You have, <laughs> oh man, you're so wow, you're the best, Paul. Right? I you can top, see that there's an obvious. <laughs> Right, there's an obvious alleyway that'll get you from one end to the other without going through any doors. And presume yeah, I assume that if I was describing that as DM, it would be obvious you're on the street. You don't have to go in any place. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let me let's talk about the slums. Okay, let's talk about the slums. So this is so fascinating. Yeah. yeah. Right. Yeah. Every time I've played the computer game, the slums is the very first area I go into. I think you have to. I mean, may there's an argument. Maybe you could go to uh, Sokol Keep. Maybe. Yeah, agreed. But. There's a whole bunch of undead. There's a bunch of undead, and it's you know, but pretty quickly you're going to slam your head into the giant orc fight right outside of the and like the last encounter right in 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 uh, in the keep, and it's like thirty or forty orcs, right? (laughs) And and I noticed that's in you know, so when I'm in the paper, uh, the ruins ruins of adventure. As I'm paging through ruins of adventure, like the very first thing that they give you is the keep. Here you go. Here's the first thing that probably players are going to do. Here's the keep. And sure enough, that encounter's in there. Here's here's 35 orcs. Good luck to your yeah. players. And yeah. I'm like, they expect first level characters to face this? Like, maybe if they're really on top of it and they have a big group and they know what they're doing and they make some clever choices, I think that's going to be a really hard fight for a first level party. And certainly it was in the computer game, right? Certainly in the computer game, I was like, no, I'm going to do the slums first. I'm going right. to, you know, right. do, a, you know, do a little grinding in the slums and fight a bunch of small groups of goblins and kobolds and such and try to get my level up a little bit first. At least get a couple Can I say that in a broad to broaden that point a bit, the ordering of the locations is weird in the print book. I can't figure out what the ordering is supposed to be because it starts with that so-called keep, which is the low-level undead keep island, right? And mm-hmm. then pretty, and then and then it's so-called keep, Koval mentioned mansions, then the slums, then the Temple of Bane, which is fairly high level, yeah. right? Yeah. I mean, the mansions uh, were pretty um, high level too, as I recall from the computer right? game. Like, I don't think you right? went to the mansions until you're about ready to do the the the, the Temple of Bane. Yeah, 
right? Yeah. And then, well, I guess it's, I guess, okay, I, okay, I guess I'm seeing as I say that, I guess it's all the city stuff, including the finale. And then after that, there's all the outdoor stuff, I guess, right? So there's Valhavo Castle, and then you get to Sorcerer's Island, Zental Keep, Thrykean Village, stuff like that. I guess that's, I'm realizing that. Yeah. But yeah, you're right. But it is weird, so, yeah. right? It is yeah. weird. Um, you know, and they, they don't really tell you, like, it's not, I don't know if they were trying to not, maybe they were trying to avoid it being too railroady because they were like, you don't have to do them in necessarily this order. And they were just trying to make it look no. a little more sandboxy, maybe. I don't know, making right. stuff up here. Um, but, you know, I do get that impression from some of the text where they're just like, here are all these things. All these things exist in the city and your players are going to explore and figure yeah. stuff out. And, and right, yes. they're trying to maybe a little more, allow it to be a little more freeform, I think, than, than it is in the computer game. Although in the computer game, you Agreed. can go do stuff out of order. You'll probably die, but, but you can try. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, but um, where was I going with this? Um, yeah, so the order is confusing. And then it takes you a while, but even even so, like you get Koval, what do you get? Not Koval Mansion. You, you get the the Sokol Keep up front, which is a fairly straightforward yeah. area. You know, I can see why maybe you would want to use that first. And then you get straight into the mansions and slums, and both of them, the maps look like this, like what we're looking at here. Which the, the what strikes me as strange about this is that it's completely empty. There's nothing. There's not a single keyed element in this right. whole map, right? Right. And and if you compare that to to the the hint guide here in the game, yes, there's a lot of empty, but there are several keyed encounters, several specific encounters. And right. I would say my impression of playing the video game is that this is actually pretty dense for the video game. As you play more and more of the video game, yeah. you end up in more yeah. and more areas with just lots of empty rooms. Yeah. And I always wondered about that. And I think you and I have discussed this in the past of like, is this because um you know, is this because they were following the the mantra from the books at the time of so such and such percentage of empty rooms, or did they just out of design time? They were just like, we can't possibly yeah. build a sixteen by sixteen grid. You know, ten times or however many blocks there are in the game, I can't remember. Like that's too much right. content. I can't. We don't have time for that. We got to get this game out the door. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's interesting and that I think at initially, right? Like with even with D and D, right? Um, there were a lot like that's that's actually what like Gary Gygax's early, you know, Greyhawk maps look like. It's mostly empty, it's mostly unkeyed, yeah. right? Not not yeah. just like area five is empty, but there's lots and lots of rooms that don't even have any keys in them, like this. And you mm -hmm. can still see that in uh Expedition of the Barrier Peaks or things like that, or the initial outdoor, you know, wilderness adventuring is like your 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 initial substrate is just depend on wandering monsters that's the adventure um and so i don't know if they they started there or in the print version they felt that was enough that like well we because because there are i'll say this, the print adventure has lots of wandering monster tables right the last 15 pages right i've never i don't think i've ever seen a book and this is about 96 pages long for what it's worth. I don't think I've ever seen a book that had such ex like an adventure that had such extensive wandering monster tables. The last 15 pages are all that. So uh, maybe at least in the print version, they were like, get a, you know, first, you know, low level area. We just rely on the wandering monsters. That's that's the adventure. Maybe. Maybe, but it's not the way the computer game was built. 
I mean, yes, there are a lot of wandering monsters in the computer game when you're running through the slums, for sure. And probably that's how you get your characters up to level two is just by bumping around the slums mm -hmm. and doing all the wandering encounters. And there's a couple encounters that are not too bad for level ones that you can take on and do in the slums right. um, and get through it. But, um, <coughs> but like, I mean, it, it, this text is probably pretty small for folks looking at it on the screen, but there's literally two paragraphs. There's a big empty map of the slums, yeah. two paragraphs, and they basically say, yeah, go use the wandering monster table. Good luck. Yep. <laughs> yep. I find that I think I think I you know right right and I'll say that like that the the in the computer game the like like I think of the maps there the top part kind of sort of looks reminiscent and the again the bottom part totally different and if I recall the computer game doesn't the bottom of the slums have this like mazy place that doesn't show you overhead that you you have like a quest to get oh, a yeah 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 um, yeah you can like kind of see it here in the that's just removed. Yeah, in in the hint book, you kind of have that bottom section. If you look, there's a basically a solid wall yeah. with. Um, I'm trying to see. It's like number fourteen, I think, is the entrance into that Maisie right. part. And there's there's literally two encounters in there, right? It's basically Maisie, and they turn off the yep. overhead map. It's your first. Yeah. I, I always kind of figured that was in there as like a, you know, ah, test this out, like figure out what it's like to have to map it yourself because that's coming later. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And there's all two encounters in there. There's one that's like an intentional one, right? Is the the, the potion guy, right? Because there's a wizard earlier on that you can bump into, and he will be like, "Go, go, pick up this potion for me," and it's hidden in there. And then the other one is a crazy overpowered fight with trolls that there's no way you can beat at level one. Yes, yes, <laughs> right. Which, yes, and I don't know, but something about me, the nostalgia for me hits is that like that is like a rite of passage of figuring out how to finally beat those stupid trolls in the corner of the of the. <laughs> of the rope guild or whatever it is that was harsh i think i went like two episodes in my streaming series where i where i was i was banging my head against that yeah um but so so yeah. let me the, the key here of what gets what strikes me as so odd about this difference here right is that yes there's a lot of empty areas in the computer game and it's relying on wandering monsters to fill it out and make it interesting but you've got at least 15 keyed encounters in here that are interesting in some way right you've got right hidden yeah. treasure behind a you know behind an invisible wall you've got a couple boss monsters i'm pretty sure there's some section where you find some some of your first journal entries right there's there's content here and yes. they just dropped it and that for, for whatever reason that seems to me like the opposite of what i would expect like if you have time with a print product unless they were like really in a rush to get this out because like ooh, the computer games going gangbusters get out the print version um, why would you not flesh it out more rather than strip it down? That's so odd. I, I, I agree. Now, maybe the linkage, right? Maybe they were really committed to having these products on the market at the same time, and maybe the linkage forced their hand to rush it even more um, than they wanted to. I will say that, because it's funny, because it's reminiscent of me of, uh, you know, D&D uh, &D Module B1, um, into the unknown. Oh my God! Now I've forgotten the name. <laughs> someone, someone, remind me what oh, module what oh. Mike Cars B one is is called. Um, is that initially right? That has like really elaborate settings. It has this elaborate pool room and all kinds of places, right? And then what it does have is here's a table of monsters and treasures, and the DM gets to put which monsters and treasures are in which locations. But it's really elaborately described. And then when they when they later reprinted that module in compilations they did the same thing 
exactly what you're seeing at. It's like, here's a map, DMs, you stock it. And the pools are taken out and all the magic stuff and all the descriptions and all the settings is just ripped out under the auspices of like DMs, you just you just throw in some random monsters here. And so um, that that seems to be a gesture of of what they were what they seem to be doing once in a while. I will say in general, the print publication looks a little unpolished to me. Looks a little unpolished. And among the things that ping my eyes is there's no playtest credit. Mm, I suspect, right? It looks a little unrefined. There's no playtest credit. I broadly expect, I broadly guess that it wasn't actually played through live at any point. And uh, in Search of the Unknown, thank you very much to Sparrow. And another thing that I noticed, I don't know if you noticed this, Paul, in the print version, the NPCs, and there's a lot of NPCs, right? Commandants and human soldiers and the, uh, you know, the orc chieftain, no stats. That's so odd. Yeah. No yeah. stats from the NPCs. They'll say, here's what the level is and here's what their magic items are. Other than that, no AC, no attacks, no hit points, nothing. No spells. Right. I mean, let's, okay, so great. So Kerry, I'm going to, let's, let's, let's pick on this thing some more. <laughs> um, you know, so yeah, here's, here's the slubs I have, I, I wanted to get on here. Um, here's, it, it, here's the chart. It, it references, it tells you to go use, yeah, go yeah. use this chart to populate it out. So first of all, I honestly looked at these charts and wondered, is this some like bad scan? Is it, do I have, cause I have a, a PDF that I got off the internet somewhere. I don't have the physical. Does it really look like this in print? Because this is really lazy layout, right? Half an empty page, just a straight numeric list, no formatting of the chart. Like this looks, <laughs> this layout is so poor. I think I could have done this in 1989. <laughs> right. It, it so looks like, unpolished. It looks, looks unpolished. Very unpolished. Right? Yeah. And it it looks just, like there was it, one single pass. Let, let, let me read some of these things to you because it's so yeah, odd. Yeah. yeah. Orc band. They always appear in groups, slightly less than the hit dice of the party. Goblin band, same as orc band. Yeah. Useful ruins. Useful ruins are ruins that have some magic item the characters can use. These ruins are guarded by a single monster, powerful enough to give the PCs problems. DM's option. <laughs> I didn't see that. What? I didn't see what? that. that. That's really sketchy. So many, there's so many things that are just so poorly written, right? Right. 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 Like, yeah. well, you've got a couple call us like use chart 10, use chart 11. And then you have number 17 and here is ruins. See earlier chart. Wait, which hmm? earlier chart? This is not great, <laughs> man. Not great. I, you know what? Okay. <laughs> let me, you're right. Okay, it looks like this was just brought, run once. It, this actually put for this actually warms my heart a little bit. I actually like feeling that I could have done this, right? <laughs> and one thing in its favors is exactly one chart per page, right? The, the next the fi next fifteen pages all have one chart per page, so at least it's easy to find when you have to thumb through that. And there is some stuff that that is very flavorful, um, particularly like in the special encounter table um or the 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 okay there, okay one thing i do like okay i'm just gonna read off the outside town encounter chart okay so outside of town encounter chart which is chart number nine you're on a d20 if you're a one through six you get tong the orc chieftain and his band tong the orc chieftain first appears with two or three orcs and is easily defeated but then but try to give him every chance to escape he'll vow revenge and from now on he keeps showing back up with more and more more and more orcs right and every time Tong is defeated, he runs away swearing vengeance next time. 
But if you roll a seven to 10, you get Jareen, the human bandit chieftain and his band. Now, Jareen is a classier, stronger version of Talon. So he gets defeated and he comes back with more humans and they, then they have archery and better armor and magic users and clerics. And uh, Jareen always escapes with a cavalier message warning of good sport to come from him next time. And you know what? That's not bad stuff, actually. <laughs> He's a classier version of the recurring orc. <laughs> I love, I love that they that they don't even they don't even try to hide the fact of like, yeah, I'm just it's the same thing. <laughs> it's the yeah, same yeah. thing. Right? It's the same thing, slightly different, little classier, but whatever. Not a single stat, right? Neither of those guys. No, have, you don't have no. any statistics. You don't have any any numbers for the initial people. Just and then there's more. And then they change, right? UDM, you handle all of that, please. Yeah, right. Which is why I say, like, frankly, if I'm if I'm opening, uh, if I'm looking at, um, I'm looking at the slums in the hint book, right? Like, first of all, the hint book. Holy cow, Dan! This, uh, like, I feel like the hint book puts to shame modern uh, walkthrough guides. Interesting. Right. Like, like it, it is very nicely laid out, very carefully laid out. You yeah. flip through yeah. the booklet, you get a lot of, um, frankly, as you flip through it, you know, you're not seeing this in the screenshots I took, but generally what you get is a two page spread map on the left side begins the key on the second half of the map okay. key on the right side. And for like several pages, just that, right. You get a nice spread of laid out and it looks nice. You get, you get the key as, um, as you can see here showing you like what's a wall, what's an illusionary wall. A little chunk on the storyline. There's always a blurb. Where can you rest? Here's where you can rest in this section. Oh, right. Oh, nice. And then, oh, nice. <laughs> right. And then it gives you all the map locations. Um, and and likewise, it's telling you things like, okay, so uh, number one in the slums is orcs. Several orcs arguing over a piece of paper. Number two is goblin arms master and his students throw detect magic on the goblins' items to find their treasure. Like, uh, yeah, it's still vague. It's the same level of vague as the paper print version, I think. Yeah, well, I, you're right. Yeah, I still have to look up orc stats. I still have to look up goblin stats. I might have to make up numbers, but I don't know. I see what good. you're saying. I, I, feel like, I feel like I could run this. I feel like I could run this. I see what you're saying. <laughs> yeah. I, that, well, that, that, what, that's, a, that's a fascinating observation. Yeah, yeah. it's very, yeah, it's very strange. Can you show me briefly the Valhingild Castle garden maze map here in the clue book? In the from the clue book, you have to give me a second to go yeah. capture and get it in the right place. Because yeah, and and why while well, Paul searches for this, the reason I ask is I think among other things, I think that the the map in the in the the print adventure has typos specifically. Um, and I I spent a number of episodes in live stream getting through that finale castle because it's this hideous enormous maze if you go through the hedges you're immediately poisoned to death and there's teleporters to confuse you and um i believe in the in the print version the teleporters are miskeyed as is as secret doors instead so if oh, i didn't, if i hadn't played through right if i hadn't played through the computer game where the key said oh there are these teleporters that randomly send you one of the other ones i'd be like what are you talking about because it's completely not visible on the map at all That's hilarious. Uh, all right. I think, let's see, what, do I have it here? Do I have it? Nope, nope. Let me, let me. So I'm just wondering if it was presented right in the clue book. 
Um, I think I think the answer is yes. Here we go. I found it. Here you go. So here's here's the maze. Um, yeah, yeah, and you get you get like number ones, right? Little number ones wherever there's a teleporter. Yeah. These spots will randomly teleport you to one of the other teleporter spots. Yeah. So in the in the in the in the paper book, they've got someplace close to those spots marked as secret doors instead. Interesting. Yeah. Mm. Which is weird. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, that was tough. That was a tough mess. <laughs> that's I mean that's that's the it's that content. It's that and the pyramid that classically screwed me up as a kid. And and to this day, I will like I will play I try to play without the hint book. I've memorized a lot of this game at this point, so like there's some things I could just do the slums with my eyes closed at this point. But <laughs> um you know, for for my own amusement, I will try to play without the hint book for as long as I can. But the pyramid and the maze, I just that is so tedious to me. I just can't stand that style of gameplay. I'm just like, I will, I will. The, my choice is is either get out the hint book and find my way through this maze, or just stop playing. Got it. So, Got it. That's, that's my own tastes, but. Um, I, now I think I think I actually showed you something from this hint book in the past, Dan. Because the other interesting thing is there's a whole section in the back about combat and how that works and what is a good options and how you should build your party. Oh. Uh, it, it describes how backstab works. It literally there's a there's like a and it talks about okay. using the the quote unquote um, uh, stalking horse method of having a, a, a friendly approach the enemy and and target them and hit them and make sure that they get a turn to fight back before then. The, the the thief sneaks in in the back and gets the backstab. So like, there's some stuff in here that is explained, not just like how how to be good at D and D, but specifically how to be good at like this implementation. Right? Because there's definitely some curiosities about Pool of Radiance, some cases where they implemented things a little differently than anything you found in a book anywhere. <laughs> so I Agreed, that was... and that's one of the things you know I actually kind of like um, about the computer game is the you know the the books necessary you know the the official D&D books necessarily and you know commendably have you know ambiguities have vagueness and places for the for the DM to adjudicate and and fill in in kind of a free form fashion we love that but when you sit down to make a computer game you do have to nail you have to make some decisions about formalizing those previously vague mechanics and I deal with this all the time when I sit down to write a D&D simulator for these kinds of things is ultimately I have to make a best, my best guess decision about what the mechanic likely was really supposed to be. And it's kind of interesting to see the, the people um, who implemented Pool of Radiance have to make those same decisions. I'd say 80% of the time, I think they made a good decision. Um, you know, among other things, they gave us the terminology for what we now call sweep attacks. Uh, we've picked up. I think it's the first place I ever saw counting diagonals as, like by, by you know, measure two and then one and then two and then one is exactly how that works for both ranges and movement. So I think that's all useful. The, the, the back attacks in my stream, I never really got that to work right. And I know that you guys told me that that's how it works, but it's so uh, off book to you have to have another person attack the figure first in the same round cycle and then have your thief character come in and hit them. And then that counts as a backstab. I mean, and of course, it's, you've got individual initiative happening. 
So up at least until this point in either, you know, BX or AD&D, right, you have group-based initiatives. So the whole idea of one person goes and another person goes isn't even in my mental state for playing normal D&D. So that, that, is a, that is a place I, need, I would need a description in a clue book or somebody mm -hmm. helpfully telling me about that because I was at no point was I going to intuit that. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, unfortunately, I think it is, you know, the clue book is good at sort of saying, this is how it works and here's how you do it. But the, the end result, in my opinion, is still ultimately just don't bother. It's, it's too complicated in this game to okay. be a, a valid tactic. And, and in okay. fact, mo if you read, like, if you get into like some of the, you know, more modern websites where people really dissect this game and talk about like speed running, most of them will tell you not to bring a thief at all. It's totally unnecessary. <clears throat> Okay. Okay. Right. Because like, yep. what's what's the point of the first of all, the backstab, which is really hard to pull off. Secondly, like you can pick locks, but there's not a single door in the game that can't be bashed. So I bother. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I right. kind of uh, like, wanna... right. I kinda... Here, go ahead. No, no, I was, I was, I was gonna, I was gonna change topics. So, so if you have more to say about backstabs, go for I'll it. I'll just say on the topic of classes, right. I like the fact that pool of radiance just has your four classic D and D classes. You can have, Fighters and clerics and thieves and magic users. That's it. There's no subclasses. Kind of neat, right? The, you know the Agreed. traditional four races, basically. Um, there is a so I, I like playing with that. I can pretend that it's original D and D in my head a little bit. Yeah, yeah, I, I totally agree with that. And there's a nice simplicity to it that feels good, right? The level range I think is decent, right? Like, um, yeah. we talked a little bit I think before the show about about the this sequel, Curse of the Azure Bonds. Uh, which, frankly, has always been a letdown for me. It's it's an okay game, but um, first of all, it, picked, it tries to pick up right where the uh, previous game left off, which means that your starting characters are six, seven, eight level characters, right? You're, you're mm -hmm. pretty high up yep. already, right? So you don't get some of that nice progression. It adds a bunch of stuff, which is great. Like you're like, oh sweet, now I can play. I can finally play, you know, rangers and paladins and druids. But it has it promotes this feature of like, oh, you can import your characters from the previous game. But if you want to play with the new stuff, you got to make all new characters. Got it. Got it. Um, Apart from first level, when you do that, what's that? Or do they boost no. the level? No, you can add your bonds. Yeah, it is a higher level okay. adventure, and you you start at okay. a much higher level. Okay, yeah. fascinating. fascinating. And of yeah. course, I can imagine the the switch being a little awkward because what people have told, what experts have told me is, uh, you know, this fifth, sixth, seventh level is around the point. Where and and in general, for you know, um, very clear stuff, Pool of Radiance is very um, uh, uh, simpatico with official AD and D rules. So they implement the the level limits for demi humans the same way. Uh, mm -hmm. You know, all the weapons have the same damage. They have, the, I believe, they have the um, you know the the damage versus different um, you know opponent size types is all, is all implemented like that. And so when you, my understanding is when you switch to the later ones, A, you're at the point where the demi-humans have hit their level caps. So it's really only viable to advance forward with human characters, I guess. Um, you know, my, basically my demi-humans all hit their level caps by the end of my Polar Radiance play, solely accepting the thief that doesn't have a, a, a upper limit. And two, everybody's saying that the encounters are harder, so you really need to intentionally juice your ability scores up towards 18s, whereas people that watch the stream saw me scrupulously avoiding that 
and just taking my lumps for having randomly rolled abilities all the way through it. So my, I, I, it sounds like my character party that I was playing with and grew very fond of might probably would not be appropriate for the, for the sequel. It's um, yeah, probably not. Probably not. Um, and I don't know the sequel, the writing of the sequel is weird. They, they clearly, they're trying to make it more story ish, right? They're like, Oh, you know, the first game was maybe not as good because it was very dungeon crawly. And we didn't have time to fill in all the empty spaces. So let's make this one a little more plot heavy. Got it. I don't know that they, I don't know that it's better as a result. <clears throat> um yeah. Let me let me praise so let me praise that, that prank. Yeah. Let me praise one thing in Ruins of Adventure, lest I become come across as a, a complete curmudgeon about this. Um, <laughs> I love this artwork. I love this. I love this two-page spread of the blocks and how it looks. Right, this is great. I love that they did this. I don't recall if there's as good of an image of the overall area in any of the rule books that came with the game, but this this image finally like kind of makes the blocks click for me. And great. and and I so I, I love this art and it, I I just think it's great. So there you go. There's my. There's it, my praise. It, it kind of stands out. I will say in this 96-page book, there's no other piece of art that looks remotely like this. <laughs> so it really, it really, it really stands out as as unusual. Someone cared about it uh, for this yeah. actual city layout. I I also like it quite a bit. Um, and uh, there's there's nothing else remotely in the book like that. So it's nice. It's no. it's it's a nice spread. You get you get a couple of like um, hex mappy outdoorsy areas which are decent you know you get right there's a, and there's a, a few splashes of artwork here and there in the book but not a lot yeah i think you're right like and we both felt this way just like you get into those encounter charts at the end and you're like did, did they just did the layout artist give up what happened, what happened? <laughs> <laughs> i'll say so for the maps right the all this mm. stuff so my my summary would be all and and miners i feel that like every i mean it's funny because it's sketchy and it leaves a lot for the dm to fill in in the print version but that having been said it's very dense with content like you'll get you know as we saw with these encounters you'll get two or three lines of like here's a bit of an encounter and the dm presumably and for traditionalists we are accustomed to this presumably is going to make a lot of stuff up on the fly based on that cue and assuming that you embrace that, there's lots and lots and lots and lots of encounters and places and things in these 96 pages. It's really dense with content. Uh, all of the encounter, all of the overall settings that are in the computer game are in the print book, as far as I can tell. Um, all of the places that are in town are grid maps, are perfectly rectilinear grid maps, not exactly the same layout as the computer game but also 16 by 16 grids the uh outdoors if you're in a, a human castle or keep that's also a grid and then all the other stuff the monster layers and the overall wilderness are hex maps so obviously those suddenly those suddenly switch to something quite different but it's interesting that the human places are all rectangular grids and then the monster places are all based on hex maps which i thought was kind of an interesting and I and I that I I think I embrace I think I I salute that I think that if you're going to make an actual D and D book I like them saying we're going to show you both we're going to show you our grid maps and we're also going to show you our hex maps because that's what you're supposed to see outdoors and um, mm -hmm. 
we're going to we're going to feel free enough to do that. And I think that was not a bad choice. I don't mind that. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I agree with that. Um, yeah, what was I mean, I feel like I feel like, Dan, unfortunately, that I completely that swooped in and, and, and polluted this uh, discussion with all of my opinions up front. I should have I should have spent some time just getting your raw. What was your initial gut reaction to this module when you first saw it? To the, to the print book? Yeah. Uh, I Okay, I think that I might have been... I, okay, maybe going in with a question mark about exactly how close it was uh, to the computer game, and it probably hews more closely than I expected. Um, it's not, you know, it's in, in retrospect, it's clearly not a conversion, right? It's clearly coming from the same source. And I don't think that we have many products these days where there was a, you know, a common ancestor and a common mm. design team, right? So you've got the same, the same people credited as the scenario designers in both, right? And you've got uh, yeah. Dave Cook, Jim Ward, um, Steve Winter, and Mike Brault, um, who are the, the top four design creditors on both. So there's a, clearly a, a uniform and a common ancestor and that makes it actually more um, uh, in line than I probably expected. And then having discovered that in the broad strokes, when I dig into the maps and all of a sudden the maps are now like different in places, but not some others, that started to, like I started to become confused about why, why that was the case. If, it's, if you're duplicating some places, why didn't you do others? So that's, yeah. that's, that was kind of, Kind of odd, and then I dig in and I realize that in some places it seems unpolished. It seems like there's a lot in places. There's like blank, you know, half blank pages, like you're pointing out. Uh, the NPCs don't get stats. Uh, lots of encounters with no, you know, no stats involved, and um, and I have to I have to interpret it as something that the DM is going to be committed to fleshing out lots and lots of stuff on the fly, and that can be good. I'm not used to seeing that anymore. Yeah, I agree with that. I agree with that. I mean, I think it would be interesting to run the Pool of Radiance content as a GM game. I'm not. I'm not sure that this book is the best way to do it. Again, like I said, I'm. I'm kind of. I would always be curious to do it just with the with the hint book as the, um, as the guide. But I, I, I will. You know, let me come back and praise the print version a little bit. There's like the first like five or six pages are just introduction, right? They're just. Let's talk about the, the the setting. Let's talk about the major NPCs. Let's talk about you know everybody's you know uh, motivations and whatnot. And the, one of the things I find interesting about that is if you think about the plot of Pool of Radiance, there's kind of this double double mystery in it, right? I like that the plot of Pool of Radiance begins with just this notion of um, you know, hey, we're reclaiming this town. Help us reclaim this town, right? And then you start to uncover stuff. Oh, there's this mysterious boss person. What's that about? And oh, there's this pool of radiance thing. What's that about? And then and then you discover one of the people who's sending you on missions is maybe involved and is maybe a traitor, right? Like that's those right. very interesting little plot twists, which I think in a computer game, you are very easy to lose, right? Because I don't know, it's not like it's not like it has that interpretive ability. It's not like there's some generative AI behind it the, changing the content, right? Like the the fact that uh, Cordova tra is a traitor, it just sort of happens. I don't I don't know that like you have a ton of 
signaling that it's going to happen or a ton of repercussion that it does happen, right? You're like, oh, I did what he asked me to, and it turns out he's a traitor. Cool. I'll say I like that part of the computer game. I, I that's, yeah. that was actually a bright, a bright spot for me. I didn't expect that in a in a really early computer game like that. And when you know I'm I'm getting my standard mission giver, right, which seems to be just a stock you know narrative element. Really, halfway mm. through, all of a sudden switches on you, and the 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 you know, the, all of a sudden the unreliable, unreliable narrator pops up halfway through. I didn't expect that. It was surprising. I thought that was a really neat element that what appeared it's, to be just a fixed part of the world twists oh, on I, you. I, I agree, thought that was a nice. I, I yeah. agree that it's clever content. I just feel like it would be way easier, way more rich to pull off with a, a live human GM than a computer could possibly okay. do. Okay. Certainly yeah, a computer program fair. in 1989. That's right. Fair. And so I yeah. like that the book is giving you all this content up front to be like, hey, you know, incorporate this stuff, you know, have play this NPC like the, the players will probably really enjoy it when he turns out to be a jerk. Right. Like that's that's a clever part. This is maybe maybe might explain the name change, the title change. You don't want people going into this thinking it's about this pool of radiance, right? Like you want them to find out about the pool okay. of radiance organically. Okay. Right. You, I see. If you go I into see. an adventure going, we're playing Pool of Radiance, then all the players are going to be like, I guess I'm I looking see. for a pool. Right. <laughs> right? Okay. okay. I see that. I see that. Yeah. The, the, it's funny because the, this introductory part you're talking about lays out the, all the stuff about the big boss right up front. In, in fact, it's the mm -hmm. only NPC that has a stat block, actually. So, so I'm, I was that kind of surprised, like, oh, they're giving you the whole, the whole story here right at the beginning. And and the viewers probably don't know this, but you and I, Paul, have had um, a, a, a little bit of a, a difference of opinion at one point about whether the whole story in an adventure should be laid out at the front. Because I will confess that I'm accustomed, right, to Gygaxian adventures where the adventure book itself slowly revealed the what was happening to the end. And so as as the DM reader, you yourself were discovering as you read it. Um, and, and admittedly, I'm, I'm kind of accustomed to that. And you, we, when we were thinking about how to structure our own stuff, you really responded to that very negatively and really re required yeah. this overview up front. I do like that. I do, I do prefer that. I like to know the major players and like the broad strokes of what they're mm -hmm. up to. I don't, I don't want, right, I don't want the plot to be didactically laid out. Right. And like, this is going to happen. This is going to happen. This is going to happen. Here's how the players are going to deal with it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But I do like to say, here are the major players. Here's what they're after. Right. Cause then I like to have that in mind as I'm reading the subsequent content because I'm be constantly thinking about how will I run this? And it's good to know, you know, oh, there's this Cordona, whatever his name is, uh, you know, trader guy. And he's got these motivations. So that when I'm role-playing earlier interactions, maybe I can have that in the back of my head and make them say things that are accurate, that down the road, the players will go, aha, I knew when he said this thing, yeah, yeah. I knew yeah. it. I knew he was a jerk, right? Look, look I'll say this, right? I, <laughs> yeah. If I, like, I'm, I'm ba like my, my um, conventions got set, my expectations got set with the earliest, the earliest ever D&D &D adventures, like, Steading of the Hill Giant Chief, which in its entirety is only eight pages long. 
Yeah. <laughs> right. Yeah. So, so this introduction that we're talking about here is is pretty much the same size as the entirety of one of the early DNA adventures. So if I read the whole adventure, that's basically like reading the introduction here. And if um, Ruins of Adventure is 96 pages long, it's probably a lot easier to lose the thread if you don't communicate it up front what you should be on the lookout for when you're reading it. So this is actually probably a really fair fair thing uh, to add uh, when you when you scale up the, the production capacity. That is interesting. It's interesting to me that this book, I didn't really look at page count, but this is full full size booklet, right? Like they did all those modules yeah. back then, eight and a half by 11 pages, yeah. 96 pages. Yeah. And again, I just, because this is what I keep doing, I'm comparing it to the hint book, which is booklet sized, 64 pages. Really? still got the same content in there, right? Mm -hmm. It certainly doesn't have this, you know, its introduction is two pages and it's just, you know, hey, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, well, it's, it's written for a totally different audience, right? This is written for, here's how to beat the video game, not here's, you know, here's how to run this as content or for players. Now we had a question earlier that the clue book was clearly written by SSI, right? That, that has an SSI credit on it. Whereas this adventure, the print adventure has a TSR yeah, I'll give you the, the the clue book was apparently written by someone named George McDonald. Um, and yeah, uh, S, definitely SSI branding all over the front. The 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 um, a little copyright notice here is definitely Strategic Simulations Inc. And then and then there's a disclaimer about AD and D being trademarks owned by TSR. Got it. And McDonald yeah. doesn't appear anywhere in the uh, the Ruins of Adventure credit, so that's that is an independent production. Interesting, interesting. And I'll say, you know, call me crazy, but you know, among your four designers is Dave Cook, right? And uh, Dave David Zeb Cook, and he's got his name on the uh, D and D Expert rules, right? He was the principal on in uh, AD and D Second Edition, right? So he was principally the one tasked with taking Gary Gygax's first edition AD&D, making it second edition. And I feel like the, a lot of the writing, right, I, I can recognize the voice, right? A second mm. edition core books have a lot of places where, oh, well, you could do this, you could do this. Uh, maybe this happens or maybe that happens, or you could play this way with experience, you could do that instead. And I think that there's kind of that same voice in here of like, well, you know, this might happen or something else, or you could have more orcs, you could have less orcs or you know, you could, you know, make sure that the whites don't hit on their first attack. So you don't, they don't drain a level in the first round. And then, and then once the players know about it, then you can open that up. Um, and it feels, you know, granted that second edition came out the next year, it's kind of, it, it kind of has that same tone in a lot of places. Mm -hmm. A lot of flexibility for the DM. Would and you... uh, Laura Suda was telling us that uh, George McDonald co-created Champions, the superhero RPG. Fascinating. Oh, there you go. Great pedigree. Dan, would you run Pool of Radiance as as content for a, a, a tabletop D&D game? Part of me wants... Great question. Part of me wants to say yes. Uh, now, the other part of me is reflecting on the fact that when folks uh, suggested a great suggestion for me to play through the Pool of Radiance computer game, uh, it wound up taking me 14 months, <laughs> 14 months of live streaming 
Um, and in total, when I got done uh, last month, actually, started last month, uh, it took me 28 episodes. And at two or three hours each, I guess that gave me about 70 hours of gameplay in the computer game. Now, maybe I was, you know, we were chatting along the way and I was explaining my thought process in a lot of places. So um, if a new player picks it up off Steam, uh, now you might go through it a little bit faster. I don't think I'd want to commit to uh, to uh, 14 months of uh, ruins of it or whatever it would take me to play through it live, maybe longer. It seems very yeah. dense to me. So I feel like you could possibly, if you really committed, you could possibly get two or three years of gameplay out of uh, Ruins of Adventure. I mean, I mean, they take you up to about seventh level. That should be maybe three quarters of a year, you'd think. Um, uh, I, feel, I feel like it would take a long time. So maybe if I took one slice, I might try that. Yeah. But I, 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 I would be a little bit leery about committing to playing through the whole thing because it seems like it might possibly take years. Yeah, I would, I, I would want to edit it myself. I feel like I would... Um, there, there are some elements that are quite good and others where I would like, like, for example, I would like to, um, like to get rid of a lot of the empty space and I would like to convert some things out of straight up crawls, right? Like the slums, I would not make a dungeon crawl, but I would make turn into a point crawl, right? Of like, yeah, there's a slums, it's, it's, you know, a bunch of buildings and whatnot. And it's this rundown part of town. And then like the, the wizard Olo is over here and. You know, the old, old rope factories over there, but like I wouldn't make them map every square of the slums, if you know what I mean. Like the extreme of that is like Kudos Well or or Podal Plaza. Those are one encounter, right? Right. Those are one point. There's, okay. I would not okay. map Podal Plaza. I'd be like, yeah, there's Podal Plaza. It's a place in the in the ruins, old ruined city. Go find it. And okay. I would not make okay. them crawl through to get there. I think that would be interesting. And then I would also, of course, ditch the ridiculous winding mazes. But <laughs> um, <laughs> I, th I think there's I think there's some good content in there and I would enjoy running it. But I think I would I would be it would very, very much my desire to go in and, and take a heavy edit to, to the content. Okay. Yeah, I can see that as a, as a middle ground. I could imagine uh, providing the players with maps of these places like, oh, yes, of course, we know what Podal Plaza looks like. Here's a map of it. Which is basically the same thing the computer game does of giving you an overhead view, uh, not showing you doors, I guess, and then just occasionally, occasionally having these certain places where you don't have an advanced map to look at while you're getting through it. Um, I would, uh, so I, I could imagine. Want, I would want the city to feel more like an old ruined city, a little more haphazard and a little less mm -hmm. regular, right? The, the sixteen by sixteen blocks feel weird. The, the huge swaths of empty space. I don't know. Anytime I'm doing, if I was doing a city crawl, if he's handed me a, a map that looks like, you know, Kudos Well or Podal Plaza, like that just doesn't feel like a city to me, right? Once I see it laid out on a nice, clean grid like that, I want it to feel more windy and haphazard and medieval and cantankerous and weird. And, and I feel like I can do that better by just letting players imagine it. And not get into the nitty gritty of you go 100 feet east and now you turn north, you go 200 feet, and there's three entrances. Like, I just, yeah, I'd rather it be a little more theater of the mind. For me, that's how I'd run it. Interesting. I hear that. Maybe, have we, we should, maybe, there's probably a whole separate episode about what's the best way to just like navigate through a city. 
Um, I might go a little. I'm like, yeah, that's that's to, that's a that's an approach. Yeah, have we not done, have we done a city adventures yeah. uh, episode? I don't like think of that specific point about it. I think yeah, we've talked about cities in the past. I don't I don't know if we talked about that particular point, but you know, I forgive you. For for forgetting whether or not we did a city adventure episode, thanks. Appreciate no, no, for the way that you the way that you navigate cities. <laughs> All right, that is for a future episode, Dan. We are out of time. Do you have any final thoughts on ruins of adventure? Well, I'll say, I like the computer game a lot. I'm so glad that folks suggest that, and I get an opportunity to uh, play through Pool of Radiance live again. Uh, we got links in the description on YouTube uh, to go see my my epic. Uh, non uh, speed run uh, through Pool of Radiance, and yeah, Ruins of Adventure. It's interest. It's interesting uh, to see the way that it's documented. Uh, I think it's usable. I think you'd have to come in and you would say, "I'm an I'm an old school DM, and I'm going to be making up lots and lots of stuff on the fly." Um, mm. I think it's I think it's usable. I think it's very you know in that once once you embrace that, it's very dense with content. It's got a lot a lot of content to to, to use and build on. So um, I think it's I think it's usable. It could be a whole campaign, easily a whole years long campaign. Um, uh, it's you know it's a it's a little different. It's a little bit on raw and unpolished. You know that's not bad. That can be a good thing. Yep, yep, I agree with that. I agree with that. Viewers, if you have an opinion on how to run uh, Ruins of Adventure or Pool of Radiance content as a as a traditional tabletop game, if you've done it. I would super love to hear that. Leave us some comments here in the YouTube video. Let us know. Maybe that'll feed a future episode for us. Definitely. And of course, uh, remember that you can like, follow, and subscribe to us on a bunch of uh, social media that's out there. We're on YouTube and Twitch and Facebook and GitHub and TikTok, and we have the handle Wandering DMs on all the sites. So please look for us there, and you'll get updates on upcoming shows. If you prefer to listen to our show in audio-only podcast format, you can do so. Those podcasts are available on our website at wanderingdms.com. Also through various podcast carriers, such as iTunes, Spotify, Pocket Cast. If you're listening to the show right now on a third-party site like that, and they offer the ability to do so, please rate and review our show. That helps other users of that site find us, and we really appreciate it. We really do. And of course, big thanks to our patrons who support the show here. If you'd like to join them, please visit patreon.com slash wandering DMs. And among our different tiers, every single one of them gets you access to our Discord server, just like Paul said at the top of our show. And in about 10 minutes, we'll be there for our video after chat where we continue the chat. We love seeing uh, uh, viewers uh, show up there with uh, your thoughts about Pool of Radiance or Ruins of Adventure. Maybe you've actually played through the, the paper version yourself. We would love to hear that. Um, other stuff coming up this week. Now, uh, thank you so much, uh, viewers, for asking about whether there is an upcoming Games from the Elder Times um, this week. There isn't this week. I apologize. For that. Now, there is something this week, and what there is is Thanksgiving Day on Thursday. Uh, we are going to have a special Book of War tournament. Uh, we're planning in the afternoon, like about 4.30, Isabel and I will get on. We like to do that for our holiday. So Isabel and I will get on about 4.30 Thursday afternoon for the big Knights versus Griffins game. And possibly a couple surprises or things we're going to play test that we haven't had an opportunity. So that is what's on the docket for the middle of the week. Paul, are you going to be, going to be tuning in at 4.30 for, uh, for, for Book of War Live? Uh, absolutely. I will be, uh, you know, sitting on the recliner. Uh, I'll can make sure to cast this to the television so everyone I'm having Thanksgiving with can be uh, rooting for 
Dan versus Isabel rather than uh, whatever other, other sports ball stuff is going on. Great, great, great. Oh, there's other stuff. Oh, well, okay. Well, I didn't. Okay, good to know about. Um, so, uh, so there, so, so that'll be that's happening, and <laughs> we look forward to look forward to if if that's what you enjoy uh, Thursday afternoon. We'll enjoy. Uh, we would love uh, folks to tune in that or catch it later. That's all good too. But of course, we are live every Sunday at one p.m. Eastern time. So please join us again next week for another thought-provoking discussion. We'll see you then.